Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, my name is Amir Engel and I'm the chair of the German department at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I'm talking today with Ofer Ashkenazi on his 2020 book, Antiheimat Cinema, The Jewish Invention of a German Landscape. Ofer, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Amir. Glad to be here. Perhaps before uh, we start talking about the book, maybe you could tell us a little about uh, yourself, uh, your career trajectory, and finally, we'd love to hear more about what it is that brought you to write this book. Yes, thank you very much. I am currently teaching modern European and German history at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and I am the director of the Richard Kebner Minerva Center for German History. This book expands on a topic that I was interested in for quite a long time, namely the participation of Jews in constituting and defining the boundaries of German national culture throughout the 20th century. I have to admit that this was not what I had in mind when I started studying history at the university. I grew up in Israel and going through the Israeli education system, I heard a lot about Nazism and the Holocaust, naturally. But my formative years were also the ones of radicalization and the strengthening of the Israeli anti-democratic right. The fear of this phenomenon got me interested in the gradual, intricate transformation from liberal democracy to um, dictatorship or a democratic dictatorship, as uh, Yaakov Talmud called it. Two major interests within this framework. Um, One, I was fascinated by the the public discourse leading to this this process during the process and throughout the years of establishing a new regime. And the second thing I wanted is to understand the experience of the people who lived through such a change. How how did they perceive it? What shaped their decision-making process and and so forth? So... (laughs) In a way, most of my efforts as historian have been directed toward finding interesting answers to these questions. 
my PhD dissertation and first monograph looked at Weimar visual culture as an arena of liberal propaganda, which endeavored to counter the rise of anti-liberal, anti-bourgeois, if you want, um, ideologies. And this is how I came to consider Jews' contribution to German culture. My second book, Weimar Film and Modern Jewish Identity, argued that some of the most popular German films in the years leading to Hitler's rise to power actually negotiated the experiences of acculturation-seeking um, German Jews who struggled with anti-Semitic biases. I then looked at other aspects of the ways the establishment of Nazi Germany had been perceived by the people who lived through it. For example, I considered the anti-war activism of Nazi supporters in the mid-1930s and their collaboration with the International Peace Organization. Or, for instance, uh, I examined the influence of exile from Nazi Germany and the development of national culture in other countries and, and how they exported the conflict between um, democratic and anti-democratic voices. The book we are talking about today deals with similar questions, but it expands on other instances of sweeping historical transitions. In this case, three major transitions. The transition from the war, the World, World War I, led by the Kaiser to, the, to a liberal democracy in Weimar Germany, the transition from democracy to violent totalitarianism, and the transition from Nazism to the Cold War with the formation of liberal democracy in the West and a socialist version of democratic totalitarianism in the East. Okay, excellent. So, okay, before you go on, let me let me set up the the discussion of the book uh, by asking you about the name, the title you chose for the book, Heimat and Anti-Heimat. So maybe before you go really into the discussion, maybe we can preface it by saying a few words about this. What what is Heimat and what is Anti-Heimat? So Heimat is a basic concept or trope in German um, national culture at least from the latter part of the, of the 19th century and through the uh, 20th century. Um, Heimat can be translated as homeland or um, home, uh, a place where you feel at home, a place where you feel secure, um, a place that represents who you are and at the same time make you um, or you know, produces the self that 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 is your identity, is your both communal, collective identity and personal identity. This is you know the main idea. Um, it's very powerful because it also goes with a parcel of well-known um, cultural imagery, um, idioms, plot lines, and so forth. So everybody knows what we're talking about when we're talking about Heimat. Now, but uh, say a few say a few words, maybe just very quickly. What? How does Heimat look? What does it look like? So there are the, the, there are several cliches if we talk about how Heimat um, looks like. Um, it, it really depends. Obviously, um, let me say it this way. So uh, Heimat is so powerful because it can be related to specific German scenery, and that can be different, very different sceneries. It can be one in the Alps or or by the Rhine or in other places or by the North Sea. 
So it's different landscapes. Um, and in all of them, there are certain cliches that are associated with them, but also associated with the German nationality as a whole. Sometimes it's uh, it's a little village uh, with a chair spire and, uh, and the river runs and the forest and so forth. And other times it's uh, the snow-capped mountains uh, and, and so forth. But if you know a little bit of German culture, you will you will recognize Heimat when you see it. Uh, it's not only imagery, it's also um, certain kinds of um, plot lines and, and emotions that are coming with it. Um, again, the sense of, of being at home and putting home at the center of experience uh, and everything goes with that. So, uh, again, this is this is a cliche and and I and it's very simplistic way that the, to to um, discuss it. Um, what we also see, and this is the the anti heimat um, is a way to use this cliche, to use this uh, well-known imagery and plot lines in order to critique or or to questions what comes, um, you know, and what comes at at the center of the idea of Heimat. Now, the point that we have to make is that Heimat is a very effective concept for German uh, nationality and from for German nationalism um, and also for German folk-based nationalism because Heimat is the real home of the of the German folk um, and therefore if you if you have a Frankish uh, mind frame, um, therefore, you can say who belongs here and who doesn't belong here. The, um, you can be a German citizen like the Jews, but if you are not belonging in the Heimat, you you do not belong um, in Germany. You're not really belong. You're not part of the folk. You're not really. You don't really belong. Anti-Heimat, and and this is the part of culture that I was interested in here, is the to the way to take. The, the tropes associated with Heimat in order to criticize this idea of, um, you know, some people are essentially belong here and some are not essentially belong. Interesting. So just to be clear, Heimat is not a big city, right? No, I didn't say that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, good point. So you could definitely talk about um, the city as Heimat, and we can see that um, in the in the German discourse about Heimat uh, in the early in the early twentieth century. Uh, that speaks about the city as some kind of uh, of Heimat, um, but there it's it's an interesting concept because the city is supposedly ephemeral supposedly the place that changes and it's um it, it contradicts some of the emotions that are um associated with with heimat um but there are some there are some ways to to go around it and and in the book i i talk about it when I, in the chapter about the city as as heimat um but maybe it's it's time to talk about why why jews are um fascinated by it Wait, one, before that, still one more question before we actually dive into the book. And that has to do with the 
time frame that you chose for the book 1918 to 1968. Now, I I know many books in German history. These are kind of uh, this kind of a strange, uh, a uncommon window uh, as a frame. So I wonder if you can say a few words. Why did you choose this frame, and what are you trying to say with this kind of periodization, 1918, 1918 to 1968? Yes. Yeah, so there are um, a few different reasons for that. One is that I wanted to go beyond the the watershed moments of German history, beyond the January 1933 and May 1945 or or 1949 uh, um, to look at more than one uh, political framework. That's uh, one thing. The other thing is that we are talking um, within this time frame. We are talking more or less about, about the same people who are active in the Weimar era. Um, going outside, uh, emigrate and uh, or exile, and many of them coming back after 1945. So they are. It's the same people, and if it's not the same people, it's the same circle of people. So some of the people I write about the the post 45 periods um, were very young filmmakers at the end of the Weimar period, um, and some of them were only born during the Weimar years and came back um, after 1945 to Germany. There is this this biographical connection between Weimar and the early um, Cold War years. Um, Another reason for it is that in 1968-1969, we start to see a wave of German counter- counterculture or counter-cinema that um, takes advantage of Heimat in order to criticize German society um, coming from the new German cinema. The Germans, mostly non-Jewish filmmakers who were born during the war or just after the war and in the 1960s um, making these critical films and they, I would argue, this is my one of the arguments of the book, that they, um, let's say, influence, not to say emulate, the uh, Jewish anti-Heimat uh, imagery and uh, just appropriate it and, and use it for their own um, their own objectives, which are different from the ones of the. Or, or somewhat different from the ones of the kind of German Jewish knowledge. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so maybe at the end you might uh, point us in the direction of a few films that we might watch after finishing the book. Um, the first uh, part of the book discusses Ernst Lubitsch, and he's a fairly well-known um, filmmaker, I think, um, from from the but you discuss an early film from 1919. Um, so maybe we could start uh, discussing the question of Heimat and anti-Heimat uh, by uh, talking a little bit about this uh, film, about Lubitsch, um, and the way he discusses and contemplates and visions or envisions uh, Heimat and anti-Heimat. Okay, so um, in order to do that, we need to... Uh 
take a step backward and ask what what is the Jewish take on uh, Heimat in Germany? And uh, because Heimat was so important for German nationality, uh, Jews were fascinated by it as well. Um, and they gave several different answers to the to the challenge of Heimat. So if Heimat is the place where we do not belong, some Jews said, no, actually we we are be, we we do belong here. We we were here from the you know 11th century, 12th century, and and show all the uh, the, the long history of Jews in Germany. Um, and others said, well, you know, we are our Heimat is not in Germany as a landscape, but in Germany as a culture, German culture, and so forth. Like um, but there are two other answers that we see a lot in in the films that Jews made in Germany. Um, and one of them, I think the best way to, to capture it was uh, by um, Donald Zweig, who said, you know, the problem of, of the Germans is that they take Heimat too seriously. Um, and therefore, they never, they never move, they never develop, uh, they never evolve. What they need is, is the Jews who are um, yeah, they're moved from one place to another. They feel at home in more than one place, and that inserts some uh, some evolution into German uh, German nationality. That's why the Germans need the Jews. Um, and then there is the answer by uh, it, many said it, but Kurtulski said it's uh, in, a, in a very nice way in his um, in his satirical book uh, Deutschland Deutschland über alles. Um, he says, well, you know, Heimat is a place, and we belong in that place, but it's not the place where you are uh, rooted because you lived there as a, as a farmer for thousands of years. It is the place that you know and love from your hikes on the weekends, from your readings and from your writings, uh, from, 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 you know, knowing the language, the, the names of the flowers and, and so on and so forth. Um, so what you see is, is that, and I think in, in Lubitsch from 1918, Mayo House Berlin, uh, I think this is, he basically takes Tucholsky's idea, and this is, uh, mind you, more than 10 years before Tucholsky writes it, uh, so, but he takes the same idea and he makes a, a comedy out of it. Um, the plot line uh, is actually stolen. That I, I found out when I started writing about it. Uh, it is stolen from a different film that was made during the war uh, that had nothing to do with, with Jews. Uh, but um, Louis Jewifies it. And he tells a story about Meyer, who is the most stereotypical Jew, who goes from Berlin, where he belongs, uh, to the mountains in Tyrol. Um, he behaves very um, you know, Jewishly, stereotypically speaking. Um, he doesn't really care about the, the environment. Uh, he litters everywhere. He doesn't care where he is. Um, uh, he, he doesn't have any respect for nature or for the locals uh, at the place. Um, and he really, what he wants to have is uh, uh, like a romance, a romance outside of the of his marriage. Um, that's that's what it is. So it's it looks like 
um, in anti-Semitic films, almost. Um, but then when you look closely, you see that um, actually Lubitsch uses all the cliches about Jews, but also about Heimat to show how ridiculous they are. So, um, for example, he goes to the um, to this Tyrolean village that's supposed to be um, like like um, the 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 symbolic the the prototypical Heimat, um, but he he finds no one that actually lives there. Everybody is a tourist, just like him. No one really cares about that. No one has any respect uh, for the place, just like him. Um, and everyone wants just like him to have fun over the weekend. Uh, and he blends in very nicely. Um, so the, the, the whole film makes fun of the idea of, of, of Heimat, the, you know, the, the cliche, the pathos written idea of Heimat, uh, and shows how the, how the stereotypical Jew can, can be part of it. It also shows how. If you once you understand Heimat as a place of recreation, um, this is also the place where Jews and non-Jews can come together and be very good friends. And this is the the end of the of the film. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So this is the way to create a new German Jewish society is by taking Heimat for what it really is. Which is a, a, a kind of a, a, a spot town, basically. Uh, it, it's not necessarily the spot town, like a place where um, urban bourgeois men and women actually go go there over the weekend as part of their leisure culture mm-hmm. um, as part of being a bourgeois urbanite this is mm-hmm. what you are and so the so the community is not a German Turkish community it's a community of the bourgeoisie the educated bourgeoisie uh, who hang out in the in the weekend in the mountains somewhere and yeah. have a good time. Excellent. Yeah. Then uh, after you uh, finish uh, discussing Lubitsch, you turn to another uh, uh, film, this one by E.A. Dupont, uh, titled The Gaia Valley from 1921. Tell us about this film and how it kind of continues the complication of Heimat and anti-Heimat uh, during the Weimar era. So this film, I think this is the film to start with. It just it was made a couple of years later, so I, um, so I... I 
wrote it as the second chapter, but it's uh, the fun to start with because the Gaia Valley, Valley is the name of a girl. Uh, oh. And and Gaia Valley is is like a very popular, it used to be a very popular novel. It was written in the 1870s and by the 1920s, uh, yeah, many people read it, read it and it's supposed to be like, you know, a, a typical Heimat novel with all the elements that you have there. Um, DuPont make, uh, makes the first rendition, film, cinematic rendition of this, um, of this novel. Uh, and after that came another uh, four or five, even six, if you count the television uh, series that were made after it. Um, so this is, a, this is a real Heimat film that was made during the Weimar by a Jewish filmmaker um, uh, during the Nazi era by uh, a very uh, enthusiast, uh, the Nazi enthusiast film, filmmaker, and then in West Germany, and then uh, as a parody, um, uh, you know, pornographic parody in the 70s, um, and then again, and again, and again. So um, it's a very important film in the German um, Heimat cinema and everything that is around it. Uh, and what you see is that many of the things that DuPont is doing in this uh, film, um, the, the scenery, the way he portrays Valley, the way he portrays other people, um, and even the plot that he makes from the, from the novel, which is not exactly the same, all of that was copied by later filmmakers, including um, during the, the Nazi period. So uh, it really contributed to, to Heimat culture. It really contributed to Heimat cinema. But at the same time, um, it has a very strong critical perspective on uh, the whole idea of Heimat. So I, I will not uh, go over all the plot here, but uh, the point is that it's about uh, a secluded village in the Alps. Um, Valley lives with her father. She's in love with one person. Uh, her father doesn't want her to marry him. He marry, tries to marry, marry her off with another person. Um, she doesn't want to do it, so he exiles her to the mountains. Um, after, after a while, she comes back. She sees that. Her former lover lives with another woman, um, and uh, she she orders someone to to shoot him as as it happens, as one does, as one does in this case, <laughs> yes. Uh, um, but but fortunately, he is just injured; he's not dead. And he tells her this is uh, that the other woman is his sister, not his new lover, and there is this happy ending. Um, the point is that um, this is the classic cliche of Heimat, and it's a terrible, terrible place. In mm -hmm. Duponsville, um, this is a very violent place. The people, the, the violence is very graphic. You can see how people beat each other with sticks and with knives and and axes, and uh, and you know burn the houses of each other and shoot each other and kills the animal. So. It's terrible. 
and it's even worse because there is no there is no sense of community there. There, when there is a, a danger to the community, everybody runs to their own place, uh, and no one helps the weak people in the village. Um, and and it's supposed to be a place where you feel at home, but the homes are destroyed again and again in this in this film. Um, and and one of the changes in the plot from between the film and uh, and the novel. Is that in the novel it ends when uh, Vali and Yosef and Olava going are going back to their home, uh, which doesn't happen uh, in the film. In the film, they 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 never go home because there is no home to go to go to. Right. So uh, so this is a, a terrible place. And Dupont basically said, you know what? You wanted Heimat. You wanted this the cliche of Heimat. You wanted this community that is tied together, secluded from the world. Um, this is terrible. This is a terrible place. And if you add to that, that this is a very Christian place. There is no place for Jews there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have the, the crosses on their necklaces and everything revolves around the church and so on. Um, yeah, so this is a place without Jews, a Heimat without Jews, and it's a terrible, terrible place. So this is uh, the poor's take on, on Heimat. Before we move on, I, I'm curious, I am so the interpretation that you suggest is is a commonplace, or I mean, how were how were the films understood during the Weimar era? Uh, how were they received? Uh, so this is a very interesting question. I what I try to do when I when I read the films, I I look at two things. I look first of all the films themselves as a visual text, so to say, so to speak. Um, what I look there is the way some some uh, images are echoed, and they are echoed from other films. They are echoed from books. There are so many uh, painting books about uh, about Heimat. There are so many photography books about Heimat. There are poems about Heimat, and and I look at how the films echo these these images these these concepts or textual images or visual images and how they play with it and what meanings they give to it um and at the same time i look at how they were um, reviewed at the time how how the critics thought about them um and and you can see that um many of the films i wrote about confuse the critics Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do with that. So they, you can you can see that you know in the case of of Dupont's film, uh, they say it's a you know it's supposed to be a cliche about Heimat, but some something doesn't work there. So it's a very strong Heimat film, but something doesn't work. So they don't. It's not read the way I read it as a, as a Jewish take on Heimat. Uh, but on the other hand, it it is clear that something there is is awkward. And so I think this is the this is the point of this film because they play on on both sides. They on one hand they provide good um, entertainment, mm-hmm. uh, very good German entertainment, uh, melodrama or comedy, Lubitsch or or you know other other types of popular genres, um, and at the same time. They have this criticism that underlies the whole the whole film. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's I, I'm not saying I have nowhere I say, you know, Dupont realized that this is what he wants to do. 
right? I don't know. Sometimes right. some filmmakers do say it, and then I, uh, and then I highlight it, of course. But in most cases, they don't. They just um, they try to give their take on Heimat, and the fact that they are coming from a Jewish background, which means. Uh, by the way, I, I don't care if they are, you know, religiously Jews or, or ethnically Jews. The fact that as, as Jews, they occupy a certain place in German society, um, which, again, we can use the cliche of insider, outsider or something like that. But it's a, it's a place where you are well situated within society. But at the same time, uh, you are always a little bit um, on the side or... Or people will point to you as 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 different, um, and and this is the point of view that they communicate again and again and again, and they use Heimat to do that. Interesting. So now the the next uh, the next discussion goes to um, a, another figure. It also moves to a, a later time period. Uh, we're talking about Helma Leski, uh, and you discusses a. Uh, um, a Weimar era film, but you also discuss uh, the work he did in Palestine for the labor Zionist organization uh, after escaping basically Germany in the 1930s. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, about who Leski was and a little bit about his film and how does it fit into your uh, a project, your understanding and your way of uh, interpreting Heimat and Andy Heimat, of course. Yes, well, Helma Lesky really deserves uh, a book for himself. And there are some uh, very good books about him, very uh, good studies about him. I can uh, recommend uh, um, Amos Morris Wright's writing on, on Helma Lesky, uh, mostly about his um, photography. Uh, very briefly, I will say that he, um, he had... Um, very interesting life, uh, or even lives, I can say, born in uh, Strasbourg, um, immigrated to Milwaukee in the U.S., uh, worked in the theater, started taking phot photographs, came back during World War One to Germany, to Berlin, uh, became a very famous photographer and then cinematographer, um, took part as a cinematographer in some of the most Famous films of the of the Weimar Republic. Uh, obviously, uh, the most uh, important one is uh, Metropolis, but many many others. Um, and then in the early 1930s, he goes to uh, Palestine and becomes the artist of the Zionist movement. Like the his by then he's in his 60s, is like the old sage um, of the Zionist movement. Um, he teaches many people how to how to photograph, how to make uh, how to make films. Uh, and in 1935, he does this very uh, influential um, documentary film, or or um, what what in German would be called a Kulturfilm um, for the Zionist movements called Avoda. Now, normally, labor. Um, Avoda, which is, yes, labor, sorry, yeah. Um, normally, when people write about Helma Lersky in this regard, um, they write about the way he transferred ideas from German nationalism mm -hmm. to 
uh, Jewish nationalists living in Palestine. And I did it too. I, I wrote I, I wrote an article about it. But actually, here I I, I argued the opposite. So um, he definitely transferred the idea from the German identity discourse into the Jewish identity discourse, and did it brilliantly in very uh, uh, convincing way. Um, but what he transferred was not Heimat or the the concept of Heimat and the sentiments of Heimat but actually the sentiments related to anti-Hamid. And that goes back to um, a film. He was a cinematographer in the late 1920s of of, um, an anti-Hamid film in uh, Germany, Um, a film about the destruction of Hamid by by the machines. And it ends with total destruction but uh, but but it's not a tragedy. It actually ends with uh, the idea that this destruction is needed to feed the the hunger, to give work to the people, and so forth. Mm-hmm. When he comes back and do the film *Labor* Palestine, 1935, um, he will do that. He will uh, make a film about the danger of Heimat, of the idea of um, a folk, of ethnic group that belongs to a certain landscape and only it belongs to to the landscape and it is rooted in it and so forth. He works very hard to to give us a a twisted notion of of Heimat, uh, a way that you cannot really be part of this this idea of Heimat. What, What does that look like? So it's it's a combination of how you. I think that the most um, striking thing is how you um, shoot the landscape. So the landscape is always um, not as Heimat's supposed to look like. He always takes it from uh, from an angle that um, gives us some kind of a claustrophobic mm. uh, feeling because it's. Uh, um, the the camera is tilted. It's tilted downward, and and so you don't you normally don't see the um, the horizons. Um, and uh, again, it's it's just like in many cases, and and I, I show it in details in the chapter. In many cases, he goes to a scene that is supposed to look like Heimat. Uh, but it is twisted. Every time it's a little bit different. It's every time it's not as it's supposed to look like. So if you are um, if you are coming from Germany, if you're a Jew, a Jew coming from Germany in the 1930, uh, 1930s, and you are well familiar with the visual manifestations of Heimat, um, this will look awkward to you. This mm-hmm. will look strange. Uh, and I think this is what he was he was going for. Um, it's. I, I don't think it's very surprising that he continues to do all these kind of, of Zionist propaganda films, but the first moment he came, after 1945, he leaves the country back to Central Europe. Mm-hmm. So he had a problem with this kind of ethnic nationalism that uh, became prominent within the Zionist movement. Interesting. Interesting. So now... 
Actually, we do turn to the post-war period and we do turn to a group of um, filmmakers that operated in West Germany after the end of the of the Second World War. And this obviously opens a whole host of questions about Jewish filmmakers and, uh, and Heimat and Germany as a place um, and after the experience of of the kind of the kind of tragic um, 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 the tragic end of the of the of the whole Heimat idea and the kind of German ideology that has to do with the connection of man uh, man and land uh, this horrific war um, so. Returning to the question, you discuss a group of Jewish writers who returned to, I'm sorry, uh, Jewish filmmakers who returned to Germany after the war. How do they imagine Heimat after the end of the war? How do they uh, contemplate the relationship with the immediate political and cultural context of the post-war era? And finally, maybe you could say a few words also about uh, the relationship between that and the pre-war, so the Weimar area culture. Oh, yeah, you asked yes. um, several, <laughs> several excellent questions. Um, so let me say that normally when we talk about Heimat cinema in Germany, we talk about the films that were made in the 50s, uh, mostly in West Germany, and mostly uh, were about the um, you know the naive way of life in the in the in the rural areas. Um, uh, it's a place where you don't see the war, you don't see any remnants of the war, but you do see the uh, the German, um, the ethnic Germans who uh, escaped the eastern part of Europe coming to Germany. So it's a place of reconciliation of. Germans, ethnic Germans, and of amnesia regarding Nazism and violence and so forth. Probably that was part of why they became so popular at that time in the 50s. Uh, there are some statistics that some years, 40% um, of the films made in Germany had relations to this Heimat. This is, this is also the time where uh, some Jewish filmmakers are coming back from exile. And uh, they are... Most of them, as I said before, the ones that are um, active in West Germany, they were part of the of filmmaking industry in Weimar, mostly in the latest year of the, of the Weimar period. Mm -hmm. um, they are coming back and they're, they're seeing how Heimat in itself has changed. Not, I mean, not only the landscape, but also the association of the concept. So if in the 1920s, Heimat is between the, you know, the tension between ethnic German nationality and, and a more inclusive aspects of, of German nationality, uh, the place of, uh, the, in relation to World War One and the place that is not, not suffered the, the fate of World War One and so forth. Um, during the Nazi era, Heimat becomes the emblem of blood and soil. Mm -hmm. So this is the place where, you know, of course, Jews are not part of. Uh, this is the place where a new German um, Aryan nationality is born. 
Um, and uh, and after the war, as I said, it's, it becomes it, it has the, li- the layer of, of Nazism, but also the layer of amnesia and and German ethnic uh, reconciliation. And when the Jewish filmmakers are coming to Germany, um, they have to deal with that, and they go back to the films that um, that they made or or their ancestors. Jewish ancestors made in the 1920s, and they adjust them to the reality and to the associations of Heimat in the 1950s. And this happens in in Western Western Jewry. Maybe you could just tell us about one film that you think is particularly interesting in this context. Yes, I think the most interesting example I can I can give is the film by John Brahm. The Golden Pest, or the, the Golden Plague, um, the, which was made in 1956 by Brahm, who used to be a, a theater director in Weimar, also in Paris, in London, uh, then started to make films in exile, uh, first in London, then in Hollywood. And then 1956, it comes back to Germany and makes this film that looks like again in, in at first glance it looks like a very conservative heimat film um about this um area west of the rhine uh where you, you have some small villages um living peacefully but then come the american soldiers with their camps and their um, easy money and easy girls and and um, even worse uh, jazz music and even worse um, black soldiers who dance jazz music and and interfere with our girls and so forth um and it ends you know it ends with a tragedy um however on a you know on, on a second look what you see is how Joel Brown shows us that Heimat doesn't work. The whole idea of Heimat doesn't work after the after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, this village in which that, that's supposed to be, you know, the 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 place where you feel at home, the place that never changed, uh, the the emblem of Germanness. Uh, this place actually uh, is is totally not like that. It's, it only looks like that to the protagonist, who is a German that, uh, for mysterious reasons, we don't know why, had to leave Germany uh, uh, like 15 years before. Now he comes back as an American soldier. He comes back to the village. And what he sees is this wonderful village. And he's, you know, is is. Um, high school sweetheart and and everything is the same and his friends are there um what he doesn't see is that the whole village is a is a place of crime operation uh-huh. uh, in which they sell you know they sell drugs and, and gasoline and and many other things that but he doesn't see it and it's a very again it's a very violent place so he goes back to the porn's idea a very very violent place with with guns everywhere people shoot at each other and it ends obviously um, with the, a big fire that uh, ruins everything, uh, and, and his friend dies in the fire and so forth. Um, and, and the whole point of the of the film is that 
if you if you want to think about Heimat, if you want to hold on to this idea of Heimat, um, you miss all the violence, you miss all the crime, and you will never be able to save this right mm-hmm. because until the, the protagonist realizes what's going on, this is too late. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is this shocking image at the end of it, from the ashes, um, the camera tilts up, and you see the church spires again. Uh, and because it's the, the it's it's above the smoke, so it looks like you know in the fog, like in this um, this Melchian uh, image, right? Uh, a fairy tale image um, of the church spires, and then the camera pans to the to the left. Um, and you see the fields going all over the place and the farmer goes and, you know, on this wagon and say good morning as if something, not, nothing ever happened. Uh-huh. Um, and so this is basically, it's the, the idea is, you know, this is, this is what you get. You get, you, you get high and you, you get violence and crime and you just forget all about it. Um, and, and this is because of I'm. So basically, uh, the idea of Heimat is kind of romantic imagination that is left in the heads of a few people who left and didn't actually know what happened for the last 15 years or something. I, I think it's stronger than that because he says, you know, um, if you insist on holding on to Heimat, mm-hmm. um, uh, it will bring you your doom. And it's even worse because no one will remember you after that. You know, people will just go on. Go on with their lives. Yeah. Fascinating. So the last uh, the last part of the discussion, the book goes actually to now to East German, East Germany, and specifically you discuss the work of Konrad Wolf, uh, who has also this fascinating uh, life story and um who actually tells a little bit about his life story, at least a, a chapter from his life story in this very powerful 1968 movie called Ich war 19, I was 19. So tell us a little bit about Konrad Wolf and uh, tell us a little bit about this film, perhaps, and the way he reconstructs, again, Heimat and anti-Heimat in, in his work. So, um, yeah, this is this is really fascinating. Konrad Wolf um, was a boy. He was born in in the 1920s. Uh, was a boy when the Nazis took over um, with his family. Uh, his father was a communist and a playwright, um, and and his father escaped to Moscow, and the family followed him to Moscow. Um, uh, there in Moscow, um, he spent the war years. Then he came back to Germany as a Red Army um, soldier um, in 1945, um, and became the number one filmmaker in in East Germany. Um, the most uh, prominent filmmaker, but also very close to the um, cultural and political institutions in uh, East Germany. Um, his brother, of course, was the head of the of the German uh, security services, the East German security services, Markus Wolf. So um, with this, he goes back, and and I think he he is uh, even though he works in East Germany, he and and he, he never made films in Weimar. He was too young. 
he knew the films of the Weimar Republic very well. And apparently he also knew the uh, West German take on, on Heimat culture pretty well. Uh, because what we see in his films, uh, and, and this is true to a series of um, historical films he makes uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, and I, I write about three of them in the book, but there are uh, a couple more. <clears throat> he he goes back to German history, to modern German history, to the Weimar Republic, to the Nazi era, to the post-Nazi um, era. Uh, and in all of these stories, he tells them as the story of um, the dissemination or destruction of Heimat. In each of them, Heimat is, uh, the, the cliche of Heimat, is the most important image, and then it just destroyed in the film. Um, in uh, the film uh, Sterne stars, it's about uh, a German officers in the Balkan who um, who just goes on. He, he's in the Balkan. He goes on hikes. He paints uh, the area. Uh, everything looks like, uh, again, a, a cliche image of German Heimat, even though he's not in Germany. Um, and it continues on and on, and that allows him not to see what's really going on during the war, which is the, the trains that take Jews from Greece to Auschwitz. And just like in John Blum's film, he realizes it, he, he, he stops his dreams of Heimat too late. And, and then he could not save the girls, the Jewish girls that he uh, falls in love with. And, and there are other, other films I talk about in the, in the book. Uh, you asked about Ishvan Oinsen, which is perhaps the most interesting of them. It's a um, semi-autobiographical film of both it. Um, it tells the story of a young German soldier in the Red Army, just like Wolf was when he was 18. And he this, this soldier does exactly what Wolf did when he was a soldier, to, namely to interpret the what the Soviet wants to say to the Germans, to talk with the Germans, uh, to convince them to surrender, and so forth. And the film is structured around this dichotomy of Heimat. So it, it always has this image of Heimat, the way Heimat should look like. And I talked before about echoes from, from other texts and other um, visual imagery. So um, he takes from uh, famous paintings and he takes from other films, some of them Nazi films, some of the Weimar films. He just takes an image that was in that film or an image that was in that painting. And then he just ruins it. So, for example, it starts with this supposedly cross the river into Germany. It, it's a, and it's an exact replica of a painting by Friedrich uh, Kasper David, which he, yeah, with everything that has to be there. But then you look a little bit into it and you see that what's in Friedrich Kasper David's uh, painting, it's, uh, there is a, a raft. Here it's a floating gallows on the on the river and in the background you hear the voice says you know the war is lost you are in a hopeless position so this idea of heimat is just the background for the the german defeat from on the one hand but on the other end of this um violence inflicted by the remaining ss fighters 
And it goes on again and again and again during the film. You have an image from uh, the Nazi film Heike, and then you know the voiceover talks about the uh, the SS people who are still remaining uh, Germany. So I, I think, and what's important here is that it's mostly a film about the identity of the protagonist which, so, or, or of Wolf himself, because people ask him again and again, what are you? What are you? Are, are you communist? Are you Jewish? Are you, where are you from exactly? He's trying to, to explain what he is, um, and he cannot because there, there is Heimat that, that really interferes in, in his self-perception, self-identification, until the last scene where you see the people from uh, the remaining surrendering SS people are in a convoy going outside of the land, going, we know, into, into the, the East, the, the Soviet Union. Um, then he says, you know, I am German. Mm-hmm. So this is the moment where he finds himself, where, you know, when you, when you clean Heimat or clean Germany from the idea of Heimat, then you are, you become German. Yes. There is a very powerful scene at the end where a, one of the German soldiers sur- surrenders to our protagonist a, and our protagonist. A, they fire together. They shoot together at a, dist- as, at a convoy of a German SS soldiers on the other side of the river. And there is a sense, there is this, just one frame where you can see a, a, a soldier dressed up in the... A, a uniform of the Red Army, and a soldier of a, a soldier dressed up in the in the Wehrmacht army, and they they fight together for kind of the new, I don't know, I guess new Germany in a sense, yeah. which is made out of communists, uh, Russians, ex possibly Jews, ex uh, exiled, and so forth. Yes, exactly, and and what's important for in our context. Is that it's all within the the scenery that is a cliche of Heimat. So right. this is where we fight about our identity. This is where we shape a new identity. We shape a new German Heimat. Uh, that's I think this is both um, idea about German history. Fascinating. So uh, to sum up, I think uh, it would be fair to say that the book is uh, ostensibly about a group of Jewish filmmakers, many of them less known or maybe. Some of the films are less known, but actually it's about a very central idea within German history, uh, German culture, and German politics, and that is a Heimat and the way it's constructed and reconstructed uh, from after uh, World War One and until after World War Two. This would you share this appreciation? Yes, I think this is this is definitely uh, one of the of the narratives in the book. The other narrative asks what what is German culture, mm-hmm. what is German national culture, and it shows that uh, first of all, German national culture is not moving in one direction. Uh, it's not like you can see. Okay, we have uh, this high note film genre, and this is where everything is coming together um, to create uh, an homogeneous homogeneous German culture. No, there are other trends in it and, and some of them are actually very critical of the of the mainstream culture. But it's part of German culture. You can't think of the one without the other. Right. Um, 
And and that goes all the way to the counterculture of the 1960s, the late 1960s and early 1970s, which, again, uh, uh, the filmmakers of the new German cinema take the same idea. And, and really, in some films, you can see that they actually take scenes from the films that were made by Jews in the 1920s and the 1950s. They take these scenes to criticize there are problems with German societies in the, in the late 60s and, and early 70s. But usually what people write about, and they write about this amazing creativity that came out of nowhere and mm-hmm. criticizes Heimat, but this is part of German culture from the 1910s and, and onwards. Maybe to sum up, uh, you can just tell us uh, what are you working on now and uh, maybe kind of the next... next uh, a phase in this ongoing project of yours to understand German film, culture, and German history, of course. Yeah, so my current project uh, considers the way Jews photograph themselves and their environment in Nazi Germany. Um, this is a topic of a book that I will be pro- that will be published in the coming summer, uh, a book I co-wrote with Sarah uh, Segev Wobik, Rebecca Grossman, and Shira Miron. Um, the, the focus is on everyday life uh, in Nazi Germany, but it goes back to the questions I, I was always always interested in. The experiences under extreme uncertainties, the ability or inability to find this, this watershed moment, the point of no return uh, when democracy collapses and replaced by well something else, but you, you're not sure what is it exactly, and, and you can see it in photographs because everybody takes photographs. Uh, we have tens of thousands of photographs about this exact moment and how people try to make sense of their life there. And so so this will be out uh, in the summer of 2024. And there is this project I'm trying to uh, develop now with uh, Guy Miron um, that takes uh, some of what I did in, in this book that we just talked about uh, but looks at, at uh, a wider, even wider context from 1871, from the from Jewish emancipation in Germany, and how German nature was involved in the in the German in, in the German Jewish identity discourse. How German Jews think about German nature, um, their role in nature, the the way they want to change nature, and so forth. But this is this is in the future. Okay, we're looking very much forward to that. And until then, um, we were discussing uh, anti-Heimat cinema, the Jewish invention of the German of a German landscape with Ofer Ashkenazi. Ofer, thank you so much for talking to us about your book. Thank you very much, Amir. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.